Acts chapter 19, reading from verse 1. Paul in Ephesus. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, and their illnesses were cured, and their evil spirits left them. Well, this morning we begin a new sermon series, and... uh, This morning what I want to do is to give you some of the background and the context of what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks and months. It was the writer T.S. Eliot who defined the Christian faith in this way, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. A condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. It's perhaps one of the simplest, yet most profound definitions of what it means to be a Christian. It's simple, but yet profound. Complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. In just a few words, Eliot manages to capture what is the paradox at the heart of the Christian faith. The fact that it's a gift but that it costs everything. That it's completely undeserved grace that deserves a response. That it's love that is 100% unconditional, but it requires obedience and holiness by way of a reply. As I said, this morning we begin a, a series of talks looking at the church in Ephesus, what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, what he wrote to Timothy, who took over leading at that particular church, and what lessons there might be for us here in Edinburgh 2,000 years later. And this morning, what I want to do is to say, give a bit of context into how the gospel arrived in Ephesus and what sort of a place Ephesus was. 
One theologian was asked why and how the early church was able to influence and basically radically transform most of the known world in about 50 or 60 years. Within 50 or 60 years of Jesus' uh, birth and death, um, most of the known world, the Roman world, the Greek world, the Jewish world, had been turned completely upside down by this group of people called Christians. And the theologian who was asked that question, how did they do it? He said, that's simple. They did it by living lives that were radically different and distinctive to the world around them. That in contrast to the multicultural, pluralism, synchronistic, that's a big word for 39 minutes past 11, um, synchronistic worldview that says that all world religions are the same and all are of equal value and worth, sounds familiar. In contrast to that, the Christians lived lives that were distinctively different and said that Jesus was Lord, not the emperor, that Jesus was the savior of the world, not the emperor or Diana or Artemis or any other gods of the Romans or the Greeks, and that their faith was unique in the world. And I think if you look back over the history of the church, the church has always grown and influenced society and culture around it when it has been going against the stream, when it has been going against the flow, when it has lived lives by values that are distinctively different and unique, whether it be in Nazi Germany, whether it be in communist China, or whether it be in parts of the Middle East and Africa or the Far East today, where the church is living distinctively different lives, different to the culture around it, different to the society in which it finds itself, then the church grows. When the church takes on the culture, when the church is influenced by the society in which it finds itself, and it's inevitably influenced to one degree or another, you can't get around that, but when it gives in and becomes almost indistinguishable from the culture in which it finds itself, then the church becomes anemic and starts to decline. And if we're honest, that's where we are in most of the West. In most of Western Europe, in parts of America, the church has taken on board the culture in which we live. And we've seen a decline in church attendance. We've seen a decline in church numbers. We've seen a decline in belief. Now, Ephesus was a difficult place to be a Christian. It was a huge city with a checkered spiritual history. It was a multicultural, sports-mad, sex-obsessed city, a population numbering a third of a million people. It was a large commercial port on the western coast of what we now call Turkey, but its harbour was beginning to silt up. And within a few years of when uh, Paul was there and he wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus, the, the, the silt got so bad that the harbour became impossible to use and Ephesus found itself six miles away from the coast. It was the commercial and admin centre of the region, the site of an annual Olympic or Isthmian Games held in an impressive stadium that could seat 24,000 people. 
It was a large and a bustling center of commerce and trade. It was a significant city, but it wasn't the capital of Asia Minor. It was a bit like um, Glasgow to Edinburgh. Steady. It's not the capital, but it was a significant city. Just let it go, Mark. East is best. Okay, it's significant. I'm giving you that. But it's not the capital. And that's where Ephesus found itself, just like Glasgow does. It was significant, but it wasn't the capital. There were three temples where people could worship the Emperor Nero, but dominating the city of Ephesus was the Temple of Diana or Artemis. This is one of the great seven wonders of the ancient world. It was supported by 127 60-foot-tall Ionic pillars and was apparently four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. And it was a, um, a magnet for occultic worship. It employed 20,000 cultic prostitutes uh, in the temple of Diana and was led by female clergy. And that may explain why Paul writes some of the things that he writes in his letter, but also in 1st and 2nd Timothy, as we'll see in the weeks to come. The temple of Diana was big religion and big, wisdom, big business. Center, as I say, of occult worship dominated by female priests, where the ancient myth said the city itself had been created by a female creator and populated by a tribe of huge Amazonian women. And it's in that context that Paul writes some of the things that he does about the relationship between men and women in the church in Ephesus. He wants them to be different. He wants them to be distinctive. And so it's into this city that the gospel arrives. First, if you've got a Bible, if you turn back to Acts chapter 18, as the Apostle Paul, accompanied by a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, arrive and preach in the synagogue, followed then by a Jew called Apollos, Acts chapter 18, verse 24, who also arrives in Ephesus and is then discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. Paul leaves them. And then he comes back at the start of our reading in Acts chapter 19, and the church starts to take, take root, and as a consequence of that, all hell is let loose in Ephesus, literally. But what do these verses have to say to us this morning in Edinburgh, 2,000 years later? Well, let's look firstly at verses 1 to 7. And this curious incident where Paul comes across a group of people who are described in Acts 19 and verse 1 as some disciples. And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. So what's going on here? There are these group of men who are called disciples, but they've never even heard that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. So that begs the question, because immediately afterwards, when Paul explains who Jesus is, they're baptized into the name of Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit comes upon them, whose disciples were they? 
Some Pentecostals, well, all Pentecostals and some Charismatics will use this particular chapter as a justification for uh, a second stage experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. They'll look at these verses in Acts 19, verses 1 to 7, and say, see, proof. You, you become a Christian, and then you need a second stage experience of the Holy Spirit where you speak in tongues. Well, that's one reading of these verses, which I think is wrong. Because it's a very odd disciple who has never even heard about the Holy Spirit. And it's a very odd disciple of Jesus who doesn't seem to know who Jesus is, and hasn't received the Holy Spirit, and hasn't been baptized in the name of Jesus. That seems a very odd disciple of Jesus. So I think it's more likely that when they're asked, whose baptism did you receive? And they say, John's baptism, that they are disciples, but they're disciples of John the Baptist. They're disciples of John the Baptist. When you uh, asked to join a particular rabbi school in Judaism, you were baptized into that rabbi's school. Being baptized was a sign that you wanted to come under their authority, that you wanted to come under their teaching. As a rabbi, if you baptized somebody, you were saying, you can be like me, you can uh, follow me, you can learn what I know, you can know what I know, you can do what I do. It's interesting, therefore, that Jesus actually never baptizes anybody. His followers baptize people in the name of Jesus, but Jesus himself doesn't baptize anybody because he knows that actually that's too big an ask. For Jesus to say, you can do what I do, you can know what I know, you can become like me, he knows that's too big an ask because of who he is. But his disciples, his followers can baptize people in his name and therefore enter, as it were, the school of Jesus. So what these guys that the Apostle Paul meets in Ephesus are, are John the Baptist's disciples. They've heard about repentance, but they haven't heard about the forgiveness and grace offered through the death and resurrection of Jesus. They haven't heard about who Jesus is. They're in the worst of situations. They're people who know that they're guilty because they know about the need for repentance, but they haven't yet experienced the grace and the forgiveness and the love offered through Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm honest, having lived in Scotland for 20 years, they're where a lot of the Scottish church are. They're very conscious of guilt. They're very conscious of sin. It's going. If we're honest, repentance isn't a word that you hear very much about in, never mind society, but even in the church in Scotland nowadays. We used to hear about people speaking about guilt, yes. We are used to hearing people saying that they're sorry, yes. We are used to people speaking in such a way that they become victims, yes but you don't often hear people out with or even inside, including preachers, speak much about repentance. Now, that may be because it's a reaction to decades, if not centuries, 
where all the church spoke about in Scotland was the need for repentance. And where decades of Christians had burdens of guilt just put upon them and put upon them and put upon them and put upon them. It's what I call the, it's the Fraser from Dad's Army School of Theology. We're doomed. <laughs> you know, it's no coincidence that those penguins in Happy Feet, if you've watched that film, the elders who prohibit anybody from having a good time or enjoying themselves, they're portrayed as Scottish penguins. <laughs> That's not a coincidence. There's a reason why that resonates with people. Why these dark, flappy, old penguins say, oh, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> There's a reason why that resonates with people, not just in Scotland, but around the world. Because if we're honest, that's how Scottish Christians often think of ourselves. And how other people around the world often think of the church in Scotland. Laden with guilt, burdened, with guilt, knowing all about repentance, but actually experiencing very little about grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. It's ironic, isn't it, for a church and a nation, effectively, that has amazing grace as its third national anthem, how little of grace is actually known and experienced and taught in the church in Scotland. It was one of the things that struck me when I moved up from England 20 years ago. That in contrast with much of what was happening in the church south of the border, the church in Scotland was stuck in exactly the same position as these followers of John the Baptist. They know all about repentance, but they've forgotten about the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus. Is that verse that, that Rich started off the service with from Psalm 100. That God is gracious and compassionate, that his mercies are new every morning. There's nothing that we can do that will make God love us more. He simply loves us because of who he is. And isn't it interesting that, as we'll see in the weeks to come, when Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, what does he pray for them? I pray that you might know the height and depth and width, and breadth, and the love of God, and that this love of God might surpass all knowledge, and that you might be filled to all the fullness of God. How are you filled with all the fullness of God? By knowing how much you're loved. And isn't it interesting that he starts with a group of people who know all about repentance in Ephesus, but haven't experienced God's love, and mercy, and grace, and forgiveness. And not just that, they haven't heard about the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of Jesus. They haven't heard about the Holy Spirit that makes it possible for us to live the life that God wants us to live. You see, again, Christianity is not a, a question of becoming a Christian and then simply doing your best, trying your hardest, pulling yourself up by your bootstrap, being good or nice. Christianity is not moralism. 
Christianity is knowing that you can't live the life that God wants you to live. That's where the we are worms theology is correct. But it doesn't stop there. Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's presence, God's life, God's love living in each one of us, we're enabled to live the life that God wants us to live. But without the Holy Spirit living inside us, we can't live the life that God wants us to live. You can't do it. And again, isn't it interesting that in the place where he begins with a group of people that have never even heard about the Holy Spirit, it's to this church in Ephesians chapter 5 that Paul says, go on, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a unique tense in the Greek. We haven't got it in the English. So in the English version, it just says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The tense is a, is a continuous aorist, I think it's called. And it means, go on, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, i.e. continually ask God to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Just got the sense this morning that there are two groups of people. There are some people here this morning who feel incredibly guilty you know that you're not what you should be. You know that the life that you've lived this week, this month, this past year even, has not been what God wanted you to live. And somehow that button has been pressed. And what's being replayed in your life is that you are guilty, that you are worthless, that you are a worm, to use that old uh, phraseology from much of Scottish theology. And you need to know that God is a God of grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. But also there's a second group of people who are trying to live the Christian life, but you're trying to live as a Christian in your own strength, in your own power. You're trying to pull yourself up by your bootstrings. And you need to know, in contrast to the first group of people, you need more of God's power in your life. These people need more of God's grace. You need more of God's power. You need to come afresh and say, Lord, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit today? Because I can't live the life that you want me to live. I need your power to fill me today. There's that old question that was asked of C.H. Spurgeon. Aren't you filled with the Holy Spirit, he said. Great Baptist preacher from the 19th century. He said, yes, but I leak. I leak every day. So every day I have to come and say, Lord, please fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. Some of us feel guilt. Some of us feel a huge burden. It's again struck when we were singing one of those songs a few minutes ago. That the, 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 the yoke that Jesus offers to us is easy and his burden is light. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you find living as a Christian burdensome, guilt-inducing, that's not how it's supposed to be. It's not easy. It's not simple. It's not straightforward. It's tough and it's demanding. But you were never supposed to live it in your own strength. You were always meant to live it in the power and the grace 
that only God can provide. And there's that paradox again at the heart of the Christian faith that it's unconditional love, but it requires obedience. It's undeserved grace, but it deserves a response of holiness. It's a free gift, but it costs everything. And repentance is not just about being sorry. The word metanoia, repentance, means literally a change of mind. So if, if, a, if a group of Roman soldiers were marching one way and their commanding officer was to say the equivalent of the word repent, it's the, the equivalent of about turn. So you, you stop going that way and you turn 180 degrees around and you start going this way. So it's not about being sorry and carry on, carrying on doing what you were doing, carrying on living the way you were living, thinking the way that you were thinking, speaking the way that you were speaking, having the attitudes that you had. It's not about saying, I'm stuck here and I'm really sorry, God, but I'm still going to live this way. It's about turning 180 degrees and saying, Lord, would you give me the, the strength, the power, the will, the energy to think differently, to speak differently, to live differently and begin to live life your way in a different direction. And it's only the, the death and resurrection and ascension of, of Jesus Christ with the gift of the Holy Spirit that makes that possible. We can't do it of our own accord. So repentance really is the way that we begin as Christians, but it's also the way that we grow as Christians. You never outgrow repentance. You have to keep on turning. You have to keep on admitting to who you are. You have to keep on to facing up to sin in your life. Acknowledging it, bringing it out from the darkness into the light and saying, Lord, I'm sorry, I've messed up again. But it's not just a question of being or feeling sorry. It's about turning around and saying, Lord, please help me to live differently as your spirit works in me. And if you're one of those two groups of people, I just encourage you this morning to ask somebody to pray for you and with you. Maybe the prayer ministry team, it may be somebody sitting next to you. But if you feel that burden of guilt, or if you feel that lack of, of God's power working in your life, then, then please don't leave this morning without asking someone to pray for you and with you. That you might know God's forgiveness, or that you might know a fresh touch of God's Spirit at work in your life. The other major lesson to learn from these verses as the gospel comes to Ephesus, well, if you look at verses 8 to 22 and what happens next, it's quite remarkable. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively, we're told, verse 8, about the kingdom of God. And then people start to turn against him. Some of them become obstinate. They refuse to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. So all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul starts off in the synagogue as he normally does. Then he leaves the synagogue because he's not getting anywhere. People are starting to turn against him. 
He hires this lecture hall of Tyrannus, and for two years, normally people think between the hours of 11 o'clock in the morning until 4 o'clock in the afternoon, when there's a sort of a Greek siesta, because it was too hot to work, he would just debate with people, because that's what people did in the hall of Tyrannus. That's what people did in the Greek world. You debated ideas. And there are two years where Paul just spends time debating with people. He shares it with Priscilla and Aquila and other people, Apollos and others, and they plant churches out of that uh, place in Ephesus. But he, he loves the people in Ephesus. But you see, what he's talking about and what he's doing in Ephesus, however, is not just intellectual. Because look what happens next. In verse 11, we're told, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. It's quite a striking phrase. God did extraordinary miracles. Through, this is not common a garden miracles. These are not your sort of everyday miracles. These are extraordinary miracles. I mean, I thought miracles by definition were out of the ordinary. But these are extraordinary miracles that Paul performs. So people um, give them their aprons and their handkerchiefs. And, and when these aprons and handkerchiefs are put on people who are sick... They're healed and evil spirits leave people. Now, why was that necessary? Why were extraordinary miracles required in Ephesus? Well, because Ephesus was this center of occult activity. Again, it's no coincidence that Paul writes Ephesians chapter 6 to the church in Ephesus, all about spiritual armor and spiritual warfare, because Ephesus is this hotbed of occult activity. The spiritual atmosphere of Ephesus is such that it needs an extraordinary demonstration of God's power as, as then people see these demonstrations of God's power and they begin to turn in numbers towards the Christian faith. And then something starts to happen. As they become Christians, they start to think, well, we can't go back to worshipping Diana, Artemis. We can't go back to worshipping Nero. And so they start to bring all the stuff that was associated with worshipping Diana. They bring what's called the scrolls of Ephesus. And they build, we're told, a huge bonfire in Acts chapter 19. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they'd done, verse 18. A number who'd practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. What does that mean? Well, the scrolls of Ephesus were part of the sort of economy of Ephesus. You, you, you got a scroll in order to be able to worship in the temple, along with en engaging in sort of um, orgiastic sex with one of these cultic prostitutes that was part of the act of worship in the temple. You would also read from the scroll of Ephesus. But these scrolls of Ephesus weren't handed out free. You had to buy them. So they bring these scrolls that have been used in the worship of, of Diana and in sorcery and in witchcraft, and they make this enormous bonfire, equivalent on today's value at about 2.2 million pounds at the minimum wage. That's quite a big bonfire. So it starts to have an impact in Ephesus. And the people who are selling the scrolls and the people who are making the silver idols that are used to worship Diana 
suddenly start to cotton on. If people are burning these, that means they're not going to use them anymore. And if they're not going to use them anymore, people are going to stop buying them. So if people are becoming Christians, they're going to stop worshipping Diana. And if they're going to stop worshipping Diana, they're going to stop buying our scrolls and they're going to stop buying our statues and our economy is stuffed. And you see what happens? The gospel starts to affect the economy. And when Christianity starts to affect people's money, that's when people start to sit up and notice. You see, when religion is kept in that bit of life over there, that's fine. But when it starts to impact your pocket, and when it starts to impact the, the economy of the city, then people start to get a bit concerned and a bit anxious. And all sorts of things kick off. There's a riot we're told in the rest of the chapter, and Paul has to slip away. Um, if I'm honest, when I read the, the chapter this week, I thought, that's a bit sneaky of Paul. He just sort of slips away, sort of going, okay, church in Ephesus, see ya. And he, he just slips out of the city, and he leaves them to it. Now, what does that tell us? Well, just to, to recap, we need to recapture the value and the heart of repentance. Not in a sort of we're worms and so unworthy way that's characterized much of the theology in the church in Scotland. We're doomed theology. But one that takes sin seriously, but also gives grace and forgiveness equal worth and value. We need to ask God to fill us afresh with the Holy Spirit so that we can live the lives that God wants us to live. But finally, we need to be clear about what we believe and why. I'm struck very much this week that if you think about the society in which you and I live, the need for us to be different and distinctive has never been greater. The need for us to live lives that are uniquely and distinctively and attractively different has perhaps never been greater than 2016. The need for Christians to live lives where fear is absent and where generous grace and love and mercy and forgiveness and hope is present has perhaps never been greater than than Scotland and Edinburgh in 2016. We're surrounded by people who are anxious. We're surrounded by people who are afraid. Just look at the politics and what's happened. In Scotland, in the UK, in America, it's fear that has been preyed upon in people's lives. As Christians, we don't need to be afraid. As Christians, we believe that we're here for a reason, we're here for a purpose. But it struck me again, thinking this week, that as Christians, we need to recognize that we live in a society that is post-Christian, where people around us will not understand the way in which we view society because they do not believe in the God that we believe in. Maybe you're watching that TV series with Professor Brian Cox over Christmas. And at one stage he was asked, you know, why are we here as human beings? And Brian Cox, apart from looking at the sky and going, it's amazing, just said, well, it's very clear we're here because we have to be. That's not a Christian worldview. We are not simply here because we have to be. We're here because God created us, God made us, because God desires a relationship with us, because God didn't need us, 
But he made humanity as part of who he is. And we are made for a relationship with him because God is a God of relationship. We're not here because we have to be. We're here because God wants us to be and desires a relationship with us. And we're not free to live how we want or choose whatever we want because God designed us as human beings to live in certain ways for our benefit and the benefit of society as a whole and the planet. And we believe that, that the way of, of living that life is through knowing Jesus Christ personally in a living relationship, a friendship with God through the person, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And that means that change is possible. It means that change is possible individually. It means that change is possible as a society and a culture. It means that change is possible even for the church. Because God is this paradox, a God of unconditional love that requires a response. A God of undeserved grace that evokes obedience and holiness. A God who accepts us as we are, but in the words of Max Licardo, loves us too much to leave us that way. Where the Holy Spirit works in us to change us and make us more like Jesus every single day. We need to know what we believe about the person of Jesus. That he is different and distinctive to all other world faiths. Our, Muslim, our, our Christian brothers and sisters who live and work in countries like Egypt and Sudan and Iran and Syria and Myanmar would just be gobsmacked if they heard, as some have online this week, that in a Christian church in Scotland, part of the Koran that declared that Jesus is not the Son of God was read out in an Epiphany carol service. They'd be scratching their heads and going, What? Because the lives that they're leading are so distinctive and so different because they know who Jesus is. And whether it was a mistake or whether it was naive, I don't know. Words are being exchanged behind the scenes. But the churches that are being distinctive and different, who are clear about what they believe, they're the, church, the churches that are growing around the world. Where they do it with grace, and mercy and generosity and compassion and love and show that their words are backed up with the lives that they live then the church is growing it grew in Ephesus it's growing in Egypt and Sudan and Iran and Syria and Myanmar and across the Middle East and the Far East where people are clear about what they believe even though it's costly and even though it's dangerous that's where the church grows. Where they take repentance seriously, where they take sin seriously, but where they also take grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and the reality and power and presence of the Holy Spirit seriously, then the church starts to grow. Always has and always will. So let's pray and ask God to fill us again this morning. Maybe to be released from that false guilt that we've lived in under for years, maybe decades.
to think again about that gift that costs everything, that grace that demands a response, love that requires obedience, forgiveness offered through Jesus, but all the resources of heaven, the power and presence of God himself, living in us and through us and enabling us to live the lives that God longs for us to live.